All right. Second Corinthians. Go ahead and turn there if you got a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. I'll tell you where we've been here. We're going to pick up in the middle of Paul's conversation to the Corinthian church. Paul and his conversation with the Corinthian church up to this point has been talking about his suffering for the gospel, the difficulties that he's experienced in sharing the gospel and taking the gospel into unreached people groups and to unreached places. And the Corinthian church was one of the ones that uh, was planted because of Paul's ministry. And we closed our conversation last week in Paul's letter talking about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Paul has been under attack in this church by some leaders who found a way to find influence in the church, whether they're false apostles or just individuals who are looking for power and for, for influence. We don't really know. We get a little bit of that throughout the book of 2 Corinthians, but much of the problems in the church at Corinth, we have to intuit or sort of uh, find implicitly in what Paul writes. And Paul ends last week talking to us about the utter faithfulness of Jesus Christ to his word, that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ, and that the church's uh, hope rests alone in what Jesus has done for them, right? That our hope is in the fact that all of what God has promised to us is found in the work, in the atonement, in the uh, rising and resurrection, and in the ascension of Jesus Christ, proving that all of our sins are forgiven, that all of our future is secure, and that for all eternity we will enjoy the presence of God. And we said last week that it was an argument from the greater to the lesser, that if you can trust Paul with your eternity and the gospel message that saves you and where you can find forgiveness of sins, then you can trust Paul when he changes his travel plans. And what we're going to see today is the why behind Paul's change of travel plans. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul's going to mention two things in passing that we don't have a lot of information about. One is a painful visit. And two, a painful letter. Paul makes, uh, from what we can tell, an unscheduled stop in the church at Corinth. And when he arrives in Corinth to deal with some issues in the church, it seems that this, there's an individual in the church who is looking for influence. And it turns out that there was probably some kind of verbal altercation, some kind of confrontation between this individual and Paul. And what we can tell from 2 Corinthians is that the Corinthian church did not back Paul. They were silent. So that there was an individual in the church who went toe-to-toe with Paul. Paul has a problem where he is now facing opposition in the church from a significant leader. The Corinthian church doesn't back him. There's the threat of splitting the church. There's the threat of Paul responding to this individual in such a way that it severs the relationship between Paul and the church. So what Paul does is retreat. And he leaves the church, and what he does is he writes something called his painful letter, where he lays out the issues. Paul is a pretty good writer. Would you grant that? Paul lays out the issues. Here are the problems, Corinthian church, that you have with these leaders in your body. And he writes this painful letter, and we don't find out until 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that the Corinthian church listened to Paul's painful letter. They actually responded and said, yes, Paul, you're right. We're going to discipline this individual that is causing division in our body. But at the same time, Paul is now facing critique, which we saw last week. Remember, Paul is facing this critique that he vacillates, that he makes a decision over here, and then he says one thing, and then he does another, that Paul's kind of just flaky, making decisions with earthly wisdom. And what Paul is going to do here is open up again his inner subjective experience. We're going to see the heart of Paul again and what was behind his thinking in both the painful visit and the painful letter that he writes. And what you're going to see is Paul talk to a church about something that is incredibly important for the life of the church. It's, it's somewhat, it's the magic of the Christian community. And it is so essential to what happens in the life of the church that it's the very thing that Satan takes aim at in a church. How do you think Satan attacks a church? 
If you were to think about that question, I think you might be surprised by 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Because by the end, we're going to find something that is incredibly easy for every single one of you in the room to do. For every single one of you who call Citadel Square home. It's something that is so normative and so common and so really the baseline of what it means to be a Christian. And what Satan is going to try to do is aim at the foundation of what makes a church a church. You with me so far? So that's what you have here in 2 Corinthians. You could teach this text about three different ways, talking about the church, talking about Paul, talking about church discipline, and I'm going to smash them all together because we don't have three weeks to do this. All right? So let's pray and ask God for his grace over his word. Father, for us as we gather and we come to your word as people who are expecting to hear from you, we pray that the spirit would give light to our eyes, that we would see things here about you that perhaps we haven't seen before. That we would see the the tenacity and the creativity of Paul, his zealous heart for this church, and that we would be a church, as we see in this passage, that longs to be obedient in everything. That you would make us sensitive to your word. That you would make us sensitive to the gospel of grace and reconciliation and forgiveness that's available in Jesus Christ. That you would bless us as we learn and study and grow. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, look at here the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to look at uh, just the last two verses, and then we'll get into chapter 2. I I feel like this chapter should have started at, uh, chapter 2 should have started at verse 23, but, you know, they don't ask me. Uh, Okay, look at verse 23 with me. But I call God to witness against me. Now, Paul has just given you, if you remember last week, he just gave you the utter faithfulness of Jesus Christ, right? He gave you the fact that God and his promises are certain and secure in Jesus Christ. And now Paul's testimony as he goes into explaining why he didn't come to the church, why his travel plans change, he begins with a, to use a vernacular, I swear to God. And the reason he does that is to unite three big ideas. One is his inner testimony of his conscience, which we saw last week. Remember that? That Paul says, my conscience is clear in the way that I spoke to you. Number two, he talked about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And number three, what he does is he puts those, three, those two together. So that all that Paul is about to say is founded on the fact that God is a God of promise-keeping faithfulness. God is a God of certainty and security and forgiveness and fulfillment of all of his promises toward the church. And Paul says, I swear to God that my heart for you is the same as God's heart for you. And that's pretty encouraging for an apostle to say, isn't it? That we have an apostle who's now sharing with the church and his heart aligns with God's heart for the church. So what Paul is about to do here is show you that his motives come from the same place as God's motives for the church. What are God's motives for the church? He loves the church. He cares for the church. He uh, inspects the church. He values the church. He washes the church in the water of the word. All of those realities. He's faithful to the church, even when the church is unfaithful. We're certain because of what God has said about our sins being forgiven, that God loves us. And all of those theological truths for Paul are in the preceding chapter. You with me? All of that reality is why Paul can say, I swear to God, God can speak to what is going on into my heart. Now look at the remainder of the verse. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. But the reason Paul didn't come again uh, wasn't his uh, vacillating, right? It wasn't making decisions in the flesh. It wasn't earthly wisdom. It wasn't after, listen, after a confrontation with an individual in the church, you could think with me that Paul goes, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to go into that church where nobody stood up for me and there's an individual who talks me down and argues me into a corner and compromises now my relationship with this church. Nobody likes confrontation, especially spiritual confrontation, right? It's significantly hard and emotional work is what you're going to see in this passage from Paul. But Paul says, the reason I didn't come back wasn't because of me. The reason I didn't come back 
was to spare you from another painful visit. So what Paul is going to do here is show restraint in his relationship with the church. That word spare typically has to do with a threat. It talks, Peter talks about it that with God did not spare angels when they sinned. So Paul says, it was painful when I was there and I don't want to do that again because it could get worse if I come back. So it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Now when somebody says that to you, it's not uh, you, it's me. Isn't that a, doesn't, don't you feel something in your heart? Don't lie. You feel a little bit like, well, who do you think you are? When somebody decides to say to you, hey, it's really for your good that I'm not coming back. I'm really doing this for what's best for you. And Paul, immediately, that feeling in your heart that you have right now where you rise up in your spirit and you go, who do you think you are? Paul immediately counteracts with verse 24. Look at verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. This is a great, I've shared this verse with our staff before, that this is the heart of a Christian leader, Christian pastor, Christian elder. You know when you're around somebody who decides to have over you authority and of somebody who has with you authority, amen? You can feel it, you can smell it, you know something is going on. Which is why Jesus in Luke talks to his disciples saying the rulers of the Gentiles, what? Lord it over those in their charge. When Peter talks to the elders in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says that they're not to domineer over the flock, but to be examples to them. So Paul, right from, does Paul have some significant authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ? He sure does. He's going to talk about his authority in this book, not to tear down, but to build up. He's called by Jesus Christ to plant the gospel, to advance the missionary efforts. But Paul, when he does, Paul is going to be so creative and savvy and strategic and sensitive to what is happening in the lives and hearts of the people that he ministers to. And he begins by saying, I'm not lording it over you. I didn't come out of some arms folded, higher than you kind of conviction. Rather, my heart towards you is to work with you for your what? For your joy. What if, listen, just what if, just, let's just imagine this together. It, if all Christian leaders had in their heart and mind, every single Christian pastor shared this ambition with Paul to say, I don't need to be in charge over you. My ministry toward you is a shoulder to shoulder next to you so that your spiritual life might be characterized by the singular word, joy. Can you imagine that? If your experience with Christian leaders was every time I get around them, they point me to Jesus Christ and my spiritual life is filled with joy. Paul says that's what ministry is like. I don't need to be over you. I don't need to be in charge. In fact, you'll see here in a minute, Paul doesn't even get between their faith, uh, I'm sorry, their faith relationship with God. It's a sacred ground that Paul won't tread on. Look at what he says next. We work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Where is joy connected to faith? Right here. When you are firm in your faith, when your confidence is in God and in Christ alone, your spiritual life is characterized by joy. And Paul says, that's what I want for you. So don't look at me like I didn't come and I didn't care about you and I was making decisions in the flesh and I was just wishy-washy. Rather, my goal for what uh, I want to do in your life is to work with you and next to you so that you might experience a fullness and complete kind of joy in your relationship with God for you to stand firm in your faith. That's my goal. That's the Christian leader's goal. That's the pastor's goal. When we come and we gather and we pray for you as a church, we are so thrilled when we hear people taking steps of obedient, faith-filled, Christ-honoring, joy-filled Christian lives. 
Now, watch Paul's plan. You, with, you see Paul's heart so far? All through chapter one, we're talking about his conscience. All through chapter one, we're talking about his sufferings. All through chapter one, we're talking about uh, the desires of what is going on in Paul's inter, inner mental life. Now look at chapter two as we begin, uh, or as we transition here into what Paul says here. Look at verse one. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Paul made a conviction decision as a leader. He says, we had a confrontation during that painful visit. And Paul recognizes that something is happening in this church and he's not going to address it. What he's going to do is invite the church to address it. And the way he's going to do that is by writing this painful letter to see if they will handle the issue in their local church that they need to. So he said, I'm not going to make another painful visit. And you can imagine the tension that Paul is in. Paul is publicly confronted and rebuked by an individual in the church. And now the whole church is watching how Paul's going to respond. What is Paul going, is Paul going to call down lightning from heaven on this guy? Is Paul going to just touch him with a handkerchief? Is Paul going to, what's he going to do? Is he going to do something magic here? Is, what, how is Paul going to defend himself and defend his reputation? He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. What's he going to do with the authority that has been given to him from heaven? And everybody's quiet. Everybody's waiting. Nobody's on Paul's side. Nobody's getting behind him. Nobody's saying, hey, we believe in you, Paul. We're for you, Paul. This guy's a bozo. And now here's this individual in church who's got influence, he's got authority, he's got clout, and people are listening to him, and Paul's recognizing there's this tension now that threatens to sever the relationship between Paul and the church. Remember what we said last week? The boasting that Paul said, you're going to get to the end, and you're going to boast in me as you're an apostle, and I'm going to boast in you as my church, and we're going to have this divine, beautiful mutuality in our relationship, but now it's threatened. And Paul says, I got to go. I got to step back. I've got to handle this problem a different way. So I decided not to make another painful visit to you. Why? Look at verse 2. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. Paul's emotional well-being, Paul's emotional experience is tied to people that both pain him and make him rejoice. You ever been there, parents? That your heart is all tied up with these little sinners and that when they do things that, that grieve you and frustrate you, your heart wears it as well. And at the same time, when there's any kind of movement of faith and obedience, what do you do? You rejoice and get out the hula hoop. You're thrilled. Why? Because they're your kids. And you long for them and you care for them. And your heart is all twisted up and invested in them. And Paul says, if I make you, if I pain you, who is there left to bring me joy except you? So I've got to write you this letter. You've got to deal with, with, what, with what is happening in the church, but my heart is all tangled up with you. It's all in there knowing the worries and the threats. Paul talks about later in, this, in, the, in the book, he says, who is, uh, I think I wrote it down here, Verse, this is chapter 11. Verse 28, he said, apart from the other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? Paul says, I'm in it with you. My heart is bound up with your heart. When you struggle, I struggle. When you're in pain, I'm in pain. When you rejoice, I rejoice. Look at what he says, the remainder of the verse. For I felt sure of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. Now, what did he just talk about was joy. Look, look back up. Uh, we work with you for your, what? For your joy. And I felt certain that my joy would be your joy. That if you rejoice in your faith relationship with Jesus Christ, if you find freedom and peace and comfort in your relationship with Jesus Christ, what does Paul find? 
His heart is filled with joy. So Paul is bound up in the spiritual well-being of this church. He cares. He's invested. Paul isn't just some super brain writing letters to people. So that it shows you the heart of the apostle, the heart of pastors are for the spiritual well-being of the people. That they're weighed down, they're twisted up, they're emotional about what is happening in the hearts and minds of people. Look at verse four, here's how he wrote. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but he caused pain. His ambition wasn't necessarily to cause pain because Paul feels the pain of the situation. He feels the rebuke from the church. He feels the division getting sown in the church. He feels the anxiety for whether or not the church will obey and listen to the apostle who shared the gospel with them. Whether or not the church will actually stand firm in faith or will get deceived and distracted by those who are influential in the body. Will they listen or will they not? What is this church going to do? And with anguish and with tears, Paul writes... Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. Listen, nobody, I, I said this, nobody likes confrontation, right? We don't like having to have the hard conversation. We don't like having to talk about significant things, especially significant spiritual realities in people's lives. It's not fun, but it's necessary, right? Now, what if, think about this. What if those conversations were had in such a way that our goal wasn't only to make sure that the joint gets back into the socket, not only to talk about how this church is in threat of losing the gospel, but what if those conversations were characterized by the fact that, that the people on the other side of us could say, that person has abundant love for me. Yeah, they said some hard stuff, but man, the reason they said that stuff was because they have a heart of abundant love for me. See, a lot of times when it comes to, to conversations that are difficult, to spiritual conversations that, that you don't know which way it's going to go, we choose out of kind of self-love not to enter into those things. But the gospel gives us this courage to step in and to say, because I love you so much, I'm gonna have this conversation with you. Because my heart is filled with abundant love and anguish and tears for what the threats are in your spiritual life, we're gonna step in and have that conversation and we're gonna do our best to make sure that you know that yeah, you're out of step, but at number two, that we love you like crazy. And that's where Paul is. I wrote to you and my heart was twisted I was anguished, I was afflicted, and I was crying over the letters that I was writing to you because I love you so much. And it seems the Corinthian church had sort of a sin of omission rather than a sin of commission. It's that they didn't do what they should have done in that moment. And here's Paul wearing the, the heat of that altercation, of that confrontation in the life of the church. Here's Paul feeling the, the tension of whether or not the church is going to listen or whether or not the church is going to, re, to leave Paul and to say, you're not our apostle anymore. It don't matter to us anymore. You shared the gospel. We like these other more popular leaders. We like these other more influential people. Now, I want you to see Paul's humility because if you're in any capacity a leader, you will wrestle with the reality of a little bitty three-letter word called ego. And you will feel the temptation rise in your heart to say, how dare they critique me? How dare they question me? And I want you to sh just, just to watch how Paul you almost can't see it because he's, he exhibits this humility. 
You've got to put yourself in his shoes to think about all of the temptations that must rise in his heart about the fact that he's been anointed and called as an apostle with personally by Jesus Christ and now have some bozo in the church question Paul. Look at verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, now stop right there. How would you write this letter to the Corinthian church if you knew? This church knows who this guy is. Paul knows who this guy is. He's not confused. We know about the painful visit. Everybody in the church knows about the painful visit. Wouldn't you write, now if Larry, that guy Larry, has caused pain. You remember Larry? Remember how Larry was loud? Remember how Larry barked at me? And Paul is so gentle because of what he's about to say. And he says, if anyone has caused pain... He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Now, this is so important because Paul doesn't get personal, but Paul steps back and says, what has just happened, church, isn't a threat to me and my ego. It's not a threat to my platform. It's not a threat to my visibility in the world and in the culture. It's actually a threat to you. Not to put, I'm not overblowing it. I'm not putting it too severely, but I'm letting you know that this issue that happens in the life of the church is a corporate issue. It's not a Paul and this guy issue. Because Paul recognizes his influence in the church with the gospel is a real thing. And secondarily, this uh, false teacher, his influence in the church is a real thing. Which means he's calling the church to take responsibility for an issue that threatens the life of the church. You with me? You see what's going on? Paul says, listen, I'm not going to make this a mano y mano thing. I'm going to make sure that you know that this is a threat to your church. Church, what are you going to do when false teaching comes into your church? Remember what Paul says in Galatians 1? He says, if we or an angel of heaven preach to you a different gospel, let them be accursed. What is he doing? He's letting the church know, guard the pulpit from bad teachers. Guard the pulpit from the individuals who will teach something that's different than the gospel that you received. So because the church has received the gospel and the gospel has created a community of people, now the community and the church cares about the fidelity to the gospel. And Paul says it's a corporate issue. Everybody has a vested interest in this. Now, as good individual American Christians, this is something that kind of runs counter to our view of the church. So that when you join Citadel Square or you join another church in the city, what you are doing is pledging commitment and faithfulness to pray for the God-honoring worship and Christ-centered word preaching of that church. And to recognize that if individuals come in and try to get our church off, that you have a corporate responsibility to the truth and the faithfulness to God's word as handed down from the apostles to us. You with me so far? So Paul says to all of you. Now watch this. This is how you know Paul doesn't take this personal. Look at verse 6. For such a one... Put it another way. For one like this guy, which means you will have this problem again. There will be people who come into your church and try to get you off of the pure doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's what you're supposed to do in this situation. For one like this, and now it's generalized so that you and I in 2022, can apply this to our church. What do we do when individuals come in and try to get us off the pure milk of the word, who try to get us off the gospel as delivered to us by the apostles? For such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. Now, let me talk about this just for a minute. 
Paul had a painful visit. You with me? He had a painful confrontation. And Paul retreated. He wrote a painful letter. But now the church, after they receive the painful letter, obey Paul and what Paul tells them to do. And they discipline the individual that had this verbal confrontation, this altercation between Paul. They did it. They obeyed. Way to go. You don't find out about that until 2 Corinthians chapter 7 where Titus returns and Titus says, Paul, they listened to you. They did it. They disciplined the guy. Aren't you glad? And Paul says, it brought my heart such great joy to know that you and I were good again. You rectified the situation that was happening in your church. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Now, let me talk about church discipline just for a minute because that's what this is. Some folks you may have in this passage may take you back to 1 Corinthians 5, which we'll look at in a second. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, this individual who's trying to get the church off of listening to Paul and instead to listen to them is excommunicated. He's disfellowshipped. And the church says, you are no longer allowed to participate in the life of the church here. Now, church discipline in the scriptures, you've got several different passages that speak to it. Matthew 18 is probably the most uh, particular one. And church discipline typically is a very slow process. Why? Because the church is involved. The vast majority of church discipline happens in the life of the body where individuals who care about one another, are concerned about one another, go to one another and to say, hey, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault just between the both of you. And if he listens, you've won your brother. Awesome. Repentance happens. Restoration happens. Forgiveness happens. Reconciliation happens. Great. If he doesn't listen, take two or three. So that the fact may be established by two or three witnesses as we're saying, brother, you're walking, sister, you're walking out of line. You're now keeping uh, in step with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the calling that Christ has upon our lives to walk holy. If he doesn't listen to two or three, then you tell it to the church and the whole church gets involved and the whole church has a conversation where we say, brother, sister, you are not walking in step with the gospel. You are walking contrary to what the gospel says about God's people and how God's people ought to act and think and behave. And if he doesn't listen to the church, you treat him as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, the good news is Jesus hung out with a lot of Gentiles and a lot of tax collectors, right? Isn't that the good news? But what is happening in the process of church discipline is saying there are rules in God's kingdom. And here we listen to God's rules. We listen to what God says, has to say about sexuality, about how we use our speech, about how we uh, respect one another, about how we long for unity with one another. And when there is perpetual refusal to operate according to the rules of the family, you are now moved out of the family into the realm where Satan is the boss. Now, let me show you this from 1 Corinthians. Turn, your, turn back from 2 Corinthians to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This happened for the Corinthian church already. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world, right? That's a good statement for the church to recognize. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That in the body of Christ, you are not allowed to name the name of Jesus Christ and at the same time live however you want. There are rules. There are standards. There are biblical commands toward fidelity and righteousness and purity and sexual uh, purity in the ways that we relate to one another. Amen? Right? If you refuse to play by those rules and still want to call the name of brother, you don't get to participate. Church discipline does three major things. One, it uh, pertains to the glory of God, that God has something to say about sin, right? He crucified his son to pay the price for sin so that we might be brought in from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's dear son. So it has something to say about God and his justice. 
Number two, it has something to say about guarding the church. That the church is meant to be a place of Christ-honoring fellowship and purity. But number three, watch this now. Number three is that, that it's for the good of the sinner. Because as we discipline sin in our midst, as we take seriously to call, the call to purity and holiness and righteousness, we are always ready and always eager and waiting so that reconciliation and restoration might happen. Because we recognize these are serious things to deal with. Isn't that why Paul is so anxious? Isn't this why Paul is filled with tears? Isn't this why Paul longs to rejoice with this church? Because he longs for them to be back in right fellowship, not only with him, but also with Jesus Christ. Now, watch what happens here. Verse, go back to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. If there's a major, majority, what else is there? Yeah, mumble it. Say minority. There's a minority. Which tells you then in church discipline issues, there's always going to be people on both sides. Amen? There's always going to be people who go, I don't think it was severe enough. Can we brand him? <laughs> and there's always going to be people go, who go, man, we got to hug him faster. We got to bring him back faster. Yeah, 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 he sinned. We get it. Let's bring him back. Bring him back. Get him back in the fellowship. And the major effect that a church has, it, this is probably complex in our culture, it was probably less so in the Corinthian times. But the consequences here of disfellowshipping, of removing this individual from fellowship in the life of the church, is really a social one. Because the church deals in spiritual matters. The church, according to Jesus with Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, has to deal with where this individual's heart is before the Lord. That's why there's so much pleading and patience and uh, yearning on the part of the church and spiritual leaders to go after the one sheep who's run away. Because we recognize the decisions that we make have eternal spiritual significance to them, don't they? So we care. It matters. If you are bound in sin and ruining your relationships, we long for there to be restoration. We long for there to be reconciliation. Because we care about your soul. We care about where you stand with Jesus Christ. We care about whether or not you can claim and receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Or you're just taking the name. You're just wearing the jersey. Now, this church did it. They disfellowshipped him. There was uh, public excommunication of this individual. Now, look at verse, look at what he says. Such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Verse 7. So you should turn, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Isn't that good? Aren't you glad that verse is there? that Paul doesn't say, the punishment of the majority is good. Take him out back, shoot him, and we're done with having that kind of sinner in our church. Paul says he got it. He got the point. This is the goal of church discipline. That the individual sinner who refuses to repent, refuses to repent, refuses to repent, recognize that something changes when I lose the benefits of partaking with the Lord's people of enjoying the benefits of the relationship with people who love me and care for me and fight for my spiritual well-being and my maturity that are invested in my well-being and now I'm restricted from receiving that. Now this individual is disfellowship, this individual is disciplined, is outside of the body and Paul says, now turn and comfort them. Turn and forgive and comfort them. Do you see why Paul takes the initial ego out of it? Because Paul has every right to say that person wronged me, but you know what I'm going to do? I am not going to hold it against them. And church, you shouldn't hold it against them either. Not only should you turn and repent and let them back in grudgingly, folding your arms, being like, well, I don't have to eat with him. Maybe somebody else can eat with him. I guess he's back in the fellowship. Maybe. I don't know. See you later. Not only I would forgive him, release the desire for payback that we go, ah, oh, you almost ruined the church. You almost split the church, bozo. Larry, ah, come on, man. Rather, 
Forgive and what? Comfort. To encourage, to come back alongside that individual and say, live your life according to the calling of those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And brother or sister, we're with you. We're for you. I'm right back next to you. It's the word parakaleo, to call beside. So that now he's back in the fellowship, she's back in the fellowship, and we're together again in this. We're comforting that. So, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. This is the, one of the greatest dangers of the church is disfellowshipping and providing no way back. You ever, let me use another kid an illustration. You ever discipline your children and you're mad and you know you're mad and you know you ought not to be mad but you're mad and you want to make sure that this, this discipline sticks so you make the discipline severe and also what you do is you provide no way back in the relationship. I have been there and that is not the heart of Jesus Christ. That is not the heart of the gospel and it is not the heart of the apostle. Paul makes sure that this individual wouldn't be outside the camp too long. Does he experience consequences for his sin? He does. Is he disfellowship? He is. Is he disciplined? He is. But we're concerned that he might be in a place where he would experience excessive sorrow and there's no way back for him into the fellowship. See, the church is like the prodigal's father. Remember the prodigal's father? The prodigal leaves. Now, the prodigal made his decision, took his money, ran away, filled his belly with what the pigs were eating. And while he's in the distant land, it says, he came to his senses. See, the father can't make him come to his senses. You gotta let him come to his senses on his own. But the minute he recognizes that I can get back in relationship with the father, what's the father doing? And while he was yet a long way off, he ran to embrace him. What's that father doing? He's looking. Is the relationship right? No. Does he have to learn some lessons? He does. Has he learned them yet? Not today. We'll try tomorrow. Not today. We'll try tomorrow. There he is on the horizon. Run and go get him. See, that's the church. That's the magic of the church. It's the beauty of the church. So I beg you, watch this, to reaffirm your love for him, verse 8. You know what reaffirm is? It's not a relational term. It's a, uh, it's a technical legal term. It's a, it's a term that's used that means ratify. So that, watch this, the whole church has to discipline this individual because he's gone against the gospel preaching of the apostle Paul. Paul says, I don't hold it against him. I forgive him. You don't need to hold it against him. Make sure, let's turn, let's forgive him, let's comfort him, let's bring him back into fellowship, but then let's make a public declaration that our son, who was lost, is now found. You with me? So that we all get the church together and we go, we go Larry, you were a bozo. Remember that? Remember we disfellowshed? Remember we confronted you one, two, three times and you had to be out. But instead, you repented and you came back and we're all gonna get together and we're gonna talk about Larry's story about how Larry went toe-to-toe with the apostle, tried to split our church to get us off the gospel, but he repented and he came back, and we're going to make a public declaration that Larry is good in the fellowship again. How many, gosh, can you imagine how many stories of that? How many restoration stories could we have? If we took seriously the call to confront sin, to show our abundant love for one another, to watch people turn from darkness to light, to watch people turn from being hardened and deceived and distracted over the things of the gospel, to repenting and returning and being restored to the body of Christ. Ratify it. Reaffirm your love for him. So watch this. Paul said, I wrote to spare you, right? Number two, Paul says, I wrote so that, you might not, that I might not suffer pain because my heart is so twisted up and tied up with you. Number three, I wrote to show you the abundant love I had for you. Look at number four while he writes in verse nine. This is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in what? Everything. What's that mean? It means that every church is fundamentally disobedient until it decides to be obedient. 
from season to season and time to time, that there will be circumstances that come up in the life of a church where a church has to turn from disobedience to obedience, to, re, to listen to the words of the apostle, to apply them, and to be obedient. Now, this church has two problems. One, they don't treat sin seriously in the church, and they haven't listened to the apostle Paul. Paul writes, they listen, way to go, church. Number two, Paul's writing now. What's the challenge in front of the church now? Forgive, comfort, bring them back in, restore them, make them a part of the body again. See, Corinth can fall off on both sides. They can be way too, they can be way too lax. Well, it ain't that bad, it ain't that big a deal, it ain't that, you know, he's just a sinner just like me, I'm just a sinner just like that. We just don't take that sin that seriously right here. We just worship and talk about Jesus, but we don't take sin that seriously. Or a church gets hard. It's like ice. Did you sin? Good, you're out. Who's next? How about you? You sin, you're out. Go on. We're pure. We're pure here. Pure people only allowed. See, a church can mess it up on both sides. Paul says, I wrote to see that you might be obedient in everything, every circumstances, every situation. How do you do this well? You've got to walk the line. There is no clear answer in church discipline, right? You can't just see into the heart of people. Even Paul can't see into the heart of this church. He says, you stand firm in your faith, but I'm not, I don't claim to walk into those waters. All I can do is stand next to you and encourage it and excite it and encourage you to walk in faith and walk in righteousness and joy. But how do you know you don't have the answer? Well, the goals of the church ought to be obedient and everything. Verse 10, here's Paul brings it in again. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. This church makes this, this declaration that he is forgiven, he is restored. Paul says, great, me too. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, watch this, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Literally, in the face of Jesus. What's that mean? That means when Paul writes to this church and that they're called to be obedient in everything, they're not obeying Paul. They're obeying the one who Paul just called God to witness or just asked to witness. You get the idea. See, every church carries out church discipline. Every church seeks for obedience. Every church seeks to, uh, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel in which they have received. And they do it because Jesus is watching. How many problems can show up in a church when nobody cares if Jesus is watching? How much pain can happen in the life of the church if no one cares that Jesus is watching? You know, in Revelation chapter, I don't know what it is, two-ish, give or take a chapter, it says of Jesus that he walks amidst the lampstands. That Jesus has full and righteous and complete discernment and authority to tell a church whether or not they're obedient or not. And Paul says, for you to be obedient, you need to remember that Jesus is watching what you do. Here's your last one in verse 11. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. What are Satan's designs in a church? What is Satan's plan in a church? If, if Satan right now was going to tempt Citadel Square, what would be his scheme? What would be his plan? And what we learn from 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is that Satan's plan is to strike at the very heart of what makes a church a church. It strikes at the very simple thing that you and I are called to do in the life of one another in this body, which is to confront sin, to call one another to repentance to long for the spiritual well-being of one another's lives, to desire that you might walk worthy of the gospel by which you have received and that you might be filled with joy. That's our job. 
to care about one another so that we might not be outwitted. You know, what a weird word. You probably didn't use that word this week. Outwitted literally means to defraud or to rob. So here's the picture, that Satan walks in the back door of the church and says, let's see, if I can pick someone off through this church being too morally loose, I'll do that. Oh, it's a church that really loves discipline, really loves righteousness, that's great. I can make sure that nobody goes to that church because they're all too pure and holy, that's awesome. I can work on both sides to pick off individuals to make sure that they are outside of the community of faith where they can actually hear, see, and respond to the gospel message of Jesus Christ, where they can actually receive forgiveness of sins, right standing before God, confidence through whom uh, all of the promises of God are yes. And if I can get them out of line because of this fellowship refuses to do the work of obedience to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, I've got them. See, Satan doesn't attack a church, you know, going like, hey, what, the Bible's not true. And the church falls apart. Satan shows up when you and me, we have to do the hard work of spiritual responsibility toward one another. And if I can pick one off, I can get somebody captured in excessive sorrow, I win. If I can get the church hardened so they'll never let them back in, I win. It's only the beauty of the gospel message of Jesus who calls sinners to himself, who washes them and redeems them and restores them and now creates a community of people who say, we long to live in the face of Jesus Christ. That kind of church that proclaims the fact that there is forgiveness for everyone, even those who go face to face and argue with an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's forgiveness for even them. There's reconciliation for even them. There's restoration for even them. Do you see why the magic of Christianity lives in the church? Because we love one another. We long for one another. We desire that sin would not have the last word. And we long to restore people to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and restore people to fellowship and relationship with one another. Amen? Isn't that the beauty of the church? Let's pray. Father, how much we need you for this reality to take root in our church. I don't confess to have figured this thing out or know how to do it, but Father, for all of us in the room, would our egos not get in the way when we experience sin against us? Would we long for spiritual restoration and reconciliation Would we be faithful as a church to do what you call us to do? To care about one another, to love one another, to long that there might be restoration and reconciliation that takes place where sinners can find forgiveness, where sinners can be brought back in, where we have the chance to declare that they are forgiven because of Jesus. So Father, this text is uh, convicting for all of us. But would you give us the courage and the zeal and the sensitivity, Father, to live in light of the truth of this text? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.